Hello, family, and welcome. We're Bob and Penny Lord, and we have a very special super saint to share with you today, St. Catherine of Genoa. Wife, humanitarian, Christian model, visionary, mystic, stigmatist, and lover of the poor souls in purgatory. In addition to the philanthropic life she led, Catherine was gifted with visions of heaven, hell, and purgatory by the Lord. Her writings on these areas are some of the best-known accounts of what life is like after death. A saint for all times and for all people, St. Catherine of Genoa is revered and respected by all, Christians, Catholic, and non-Catholic alike. Come with us now as we share with you the life of this great saint. St. Catherine of Genoa was born into a very prominent family of nobility that produced two popes, St. IV in 1234 and his nephew, Adrian V, who was pope for only a few weeks. Her father was one of the powerful Fieschi family who, when he married Catherine's mother, linked two strong aristocratic families of Genoa. But God had different plans for Catherine. She was destined to be wholly dedicated to the Lord as his faithful bride from her youngest years. At eight years old, Catherine began to do penance, exchanging her soft, luxurious bed for a bit of straw on the hard floor and her fluffy pillow for a tree stump. She was an obedient child and showed signs of holiness even at that early age. When she was 12 years old, she had her first glimpse of God's love, sharing his suffering during his holy passion. At 13, she shared with her confessor her desire to become a nun. As he was also the confessor of the nuns of Our Lady of Grace Convent, where her sister Limbania was already a canonist regular, Catherine pleaded with him to intercede on her behalf. The superiors rejected Catherine because it was not their custom to accept girls of such a young age. Although disappointed, she never lost her faith in her Lord and his love for her. A year later, her father died, and when he died, the family holdings were jeopardized. How does a family keep its position? They marry off their children, uniting two strong families. And so Catherine became a political pawn, and a marriage of convenience was arranged for her. Catherine was again to see her heart broken, first when father her father died, and then when she was told she was to marry. But Catherine led a life of obedience and faithfulness and loyalty. When her family said it was necessary for her to marry, she obeyed. And she entered into a marriage the way she entered into everything, with 100% of who she was. She was married to a young noble of the prominent well-to-do Adorno family, also of Genoa. She was a very strong woman. She could never have survived the years of her husband's infidelity if she hadn't been strong. Let's talk a bit about her marriage to Giuliano Adorno. At first, it would be safe to say this was not really a choice made in heaven, but God allowed it, and we never know God's ways. Her husband, Giuliano, was the direct opposite of Catherine. Whereas she was holy and religious, he was wild and self-indulgent to the sacrifice of everything and everyone. The first 10 years of married life were stark, unadulterated hell for Catherine. He squandered all their wealth on good times and wild women. Catherine, after suffering five years of loneliness, unable to endure her husband's infidelity and lifestyle, feeling deserted from everyone, even God, turned to the frivolous life of her class going to parties and becoming more and more involved with the next party and new dress that she would wear. 
Although her attempts at finding some meaning in life were innocent, they did not bring her the joy and peace she sought so desperately. And so the depression she attempted to overcome grew worse. Catherine socialized with the people that her husband socialized with. Otherwise, she would never have seen her husband because he was always out and about with his questionable acquaintances. And so Catherine spent the next five years in a torture of a different kind, praying and seeking joy and peace in this life and finding none, because when we turn our back on the Lord, there is no peace and joy. No human can give you the peace and joy that our Lord Jesus gives you. Her sister Limbania, upon seeing Catherine's intense sadness and the interior struggle that was going on inside of her, suggested Catherine go to confession to her confessor. When Catherine knelt before the confessor, suddenly she could not confess. Our dear Lord Jesus poured his spirit down upon her and she could see before her as if it were a video of her life, how many times she had put people, human respect, above his respect. She had put the trappings and the attractions of the world, but primarily her husband, before her God. And even the worries and cares about her husband's infidelity, which had drawn her away from him, from her Lord. As Catherine saw all the pain she had caused her Lord, her remorse became deeper and deeper and deeper. She was so overcome she couldn't speak. She ran home in tears, and for three days she had no rest, no reprise from the guilt she felt. She was suddenly filled with remorse for the life she had been leading. It was as if the Lord was unfurling her life before her like a film, showing her the many times she had betrayed the love he had for her. Then our Lord appeared to her, covered with blood, carrying the cross. As he shared that part of his life in pain, she became deeply filled with his love, and through that knowledge, a heavy sadness for the last ten wasted years, years that she could have spent loving him. For the next fourteen months, the more the Lord revealed his love and her sins, the more she desired to be cleansed and lead a new life in him. As one by one her sins were revealed to her, she repented and they disappeared, consumed by the flames of his love, never to reappear. One day, while Catherine was praying before the crucifix, she was lifted up to our Lord's wounded heart on the cross. This heart, which had been pierced out of love for all mankind, was on fire, glowing with the same flames that burned inside her own heart. It was the same fire that he had enkindled in her, the same blaze which had consumed her sins and never to resurface. This so affected Catherine, she relived it for years, crying out, I have no longer either soul nor heart, but my soul and my heart are those of my beloved. Our Lord, as he was showing her the times that she had turned her back on him, was also showing her his unconditional love that he never stopped loving her. Catherine was changed. She became totally absorbed in her Savior. No longer did she need or desire the world and its trappings. After our Lord appeared to her on the cross and drew her up to him, after she had felt herself like John the Beloved resting her head on his precious chest, she saw everything through his eyes. She no longer had to decide what was right or wrong, rather how it was revealed in the light of God. She made a general confession on March the 24th, three days after her failed confession, and her new life began. We always say God has a sense of humor. 
Of course, as calamity strikes, it's difficult to see beyond the darkness to the light which is about to shine through. Catherine's husband, Giuliano's life caught up with him, and they were reduced to almost total poverty. We do not know if the newfound strength displayed by Catherine brought about the change, along with her unrelenting prayers for salvation, or the frailty of the world's possessions and glory, but you guessed it, Catherine's husband was converted. Giuliano agreed to live a celibate life with Catherine, a life of perpetual abstinence. He became a Franciscan tertiary. They moved out of their palace to a small house, which was conveniently close to the hospital where the two would serve the sick and helpless. Giuliano tended to the poor and the infirm selflessly and tirelessly until his death. In 1479, six years after their first move from the luxurious estate to the austere, they went from the modest home to two small rooms in the hospital. They supported themselves with a small pension Catherine received from her parents' estate. They served without pay the poorest of the poor and the most destitute. For 11 years, Catherine served as a nurse, taking on any and all tasks, small and great. In 1490, she was asked to take over the administration of the hospital. Although she would have preferred caring full times for the ill, she took on her new task with the same kind of dedication and zeal. She handled financial matters efficiently, scrupulously accounting for every penny, never taking any recompense for her services. But she did not do this at the expense of her prayer life or her service to the poor and the sick. In 1493, a deadly epidemic spread throughout the province, claiming 80% of the population. Those who contracted the disease after suffering excruciating pain accompanied by high fevers. There was a very pious woman in the hospital dying from this highly contagious disease. She underwent the greatest trials, enduring unbearable agony for eight days. Catherine visited and tended to her often. Try as she may, the woman was unable to call on Jesus the shepherd for help. Catherine repeated over and over again, call. No matter how she tried, the woman could not reach out to her Savior for consolation. She tried mouthing the words, her lips forming the name of Jesus, but no sound came forth. One day, seeing the noble effort put forward by her holy patient, Catherine kissed her lips. Hours later, dizziness, flushed cheeks, accompanied by a raging high fever, confirmed Catherine's suspicions she had contracted the deadly disease. She narrowly escaped death. This close call with the angel of death, however, did not deter her from performing all her hospital duties. She returned to her patients, including the highly contagious, before she herself was completely recuperated. When Catherine found out that Giuliani Anno had a mistress and a child by this mistress, she not only, from what little she received, shared it with the mistress, she supported her to the degree she could, she left the inheritance left to her by her family to the child of her husband and his mistress. But this is not the end of the story. Not only was Catherine converted back to the Lord, not only was Giuliano converted, but Giuliano's mistress was converted, became a nun, and died as a nun. Now, thinking of the family and the traditions of the Italian people of that time and times past, this is a complete mystery if you see with the eyes of the world and not those of the Lord.
Catherine became through the overpowering outpouring of love from her savior, what we're all called to be and find so very difficult, a contradiction in the world. A forgiveness of her husband and his years of infidelity, which had been compounded by his irresponsible lifestyle impoverishing them, could not be construed as anything but conversion through divine intervention. Only the heart of the Savior could have melted her heart, forgiving Giuliano for all the years of aloneness and pain he had caused her, the wounds she carried as he was holding back his love from her, robbing her of all those years of innocence. But when the Lord with his open heart melts our hearts of stone, placing our wounded hearts into his, we begin to love again, only now with the heart of the Savior, whose last words on the cross were pleading with the Father to forgive his persecutors. But it is so hard, Lord. On the Feast of the Annunciation following Catherine's conversion, our Lord gave her a burning desire for himself in the Eucharist, a love she never lost. Contrary to the rule of that time, Catherine was given special permission to receive Holy Communion every day. She became a daily communicant, which was most unusual for those days. Only priests were permitted to receive communion daily. What we take for granted and often do not take advantage of, being able to receive our Lord daily in Holy Communion, was first instituted by the Holy Saint Pope Pius X at the beginning of the 20th century. Once Catherine was able to receive her Lord daily, she never stopped, except for one time. One day a holy religious asked her, did you ever think that there might be something wrong with your receiving communion every day? Although it caused her much anguish and sorrow, fearing she might be doing something wrong, she abstained from receiving daily. The religious, seeing how she preferred to suffer rather than offend God, directed her to return to receiving Holy Communion daily. After her conversion, Jesus invited Catherine to be with him in the desert for 40 days. In remembrance of that time, he fasted without food or water, suffering temptation from the devil. Catherine ate nothing during that Lent until Easter Sunday, subsisting only on the Eucharist. Her love for Jesus became so great, and her desire for the Eucharist grew to such proportions, all other food became distasteful during those 40 days of Lent, as well as the 40 days of Advent each year. At, the same, at that time, Catherine supplemented the sacred host with only a small bit of salted water or bitter-tasting water and vinegar. That first year, it was only during Lent, but then every year after, it was during Lent and Advent. During that time when she even looked at food, she would become ill. Food was so very repulsive to her. But when the Lenten period and Advent periods were over, she ate with a voracious appetite. So it's not like she lost the appetite. The Lord gave her the gift of kind of numbing it during those seasons. But when she had, but she did have a very healthy appetite after Advent and after Lent was over. Now, anyone fasting for that period of time would most probably become emaciated. With Catherine, it was just the opposite. She had more energy. She looked better than ever. She looked younger. It was miraculous. He was her life, and she needed no other nourishment. Although for 34 years her only sustenance had been the reception of Holy Communion and a bit of water mixed with a bit of salt, 
She was active until she died at age 63. Once she was so ill, the doctors told everyone she was dying. She could take no food or water, no nourishment of any kind. Catherine refused the Holy Eucharist, saying if she could receive her Lord just three times, she would be cured. She received communion and was immediately healed, returning to her activities once more as if she had never been ill. When Catherine was deprived of Holy Communion for any reason, she suffered such unbearable, excruciating physical pain, all who attended her knew it was the will of God that she be united with her spouse in his body, blood, soul, and divinity through the Eucharist. They say Catherine rarely cried, but one night she awakened drenched with tears she had shed. She had dreamt that she would not receive Holy Communion the next day. She shared that when she received Holy Communion, she felt a ray of love deeply pierce her heart. We wonder if it was like the red-hot arrow that pierced the hearts of such mystics as St. Teresa of Avila, Gemma Galgani, Veronica Giuliani, John of the Cross, and Padre Pio when they received transverberations of their hearts from the hands of an angel. So great was Catherine's love for her Lord in the Eucharist. She told him she desired nothing but him and him wholly. She asked him not to grant her visions or any earthly consolations. She rather would walk by faith. The great love that she embraced through her partaking of the Eucharist was enough for her. She allowed little or no temptations to lure her from her God, spurning all human respect in favor of that of the divine. Temptations like insects attracted to a burning candle would be consumed by the flames within her heart which burned with the love of her Lord. She spent six hours in prayer each day, and yet she was able to fulfill all of her commitments. She lived subject to others, serving others, to the neglect of herself, her desires and needs. And when she had the slightest tendency to fall prey to her natural inclinations, the Lord revealed them to her, giving her the opportunity to identify and rebuke them. She had practiced acts of penance and mortification for four years. When the four years ended, Catherine was no longer allowed to practice these acts of penance and mortification. Although she desired to do so, the Lord said it had been his will she do so for four years, not her will. Now it was his will she cease, and she obeyed. Though her inner spirituality was drawing her into ecstasy, she remained a faithful servant of the needy. She always showed concern for others, but did not allow her desire to serve the poor and helpless to take away from her family. She used just enough from her modest inheritance to barely sustain herself. This was so she could leave some form of security to her family, especially to her unwed nieces and the widows. Catherine never took her gifts for granted. As she grew closer to God, she disappeared and all that was left was her God fully in charge. At one point, the Lord told her, never say I will or I will not. Never say mine, but always say ours. The Lord told her, never excuse yourself, but always be ready to accuse yourself. Can you imagine being able to live this kind of life without the Lord fully in charge? Can you try to fathom the dying to self that's required of Catherine? The last six months of her life, she sipped a little broth and consumed nothing but the Eucharist, only the Eucharist. 
Towards the end, she could keep nothing down, with the exception of the Eucharist. Her body became truly united with her Savior as she shared his suffering during the Passion. As she lay dying, she opened her arms as our Lord Jesus on the cross, and suddenly the pain left her face. She no longer resembled the crucified Christ, but the resurrected Christ. The signs of his wounds were still visible for the eyes of the world to see, but her interior spirit reflected the joy of one who had already seen heaven from afar, saluted it, and now was on the threshold of entering into her long-awaited eternal life with her spouse Jesus. As the word got out that the saint was dying, the faith were, faithful were already coming to see her and already proclaiming her blessed. She was radiant, reflecting such blinding joy that her light filled what could have been a very gloomy room. And she spoke with such joy of the Lord and his love for them, they felt as if they were at a celebration. On the 13th of September, Catherine started to bleed profusely. It was very difficult for her followers and the doctors to believe that she was dying because she had been so joyous and so full of life. The bleeding continued without stopping, and on September the 14th, the Feast of the Triumph of the Cross, Catherine gave up her spirit to her Lord and her Savior, the one she had known so deeply, so intimately in ecstasy. She had spent years and years of ecstasy with our Lord Jesus. Now she would spend all eternity with him in the kingdom. As she was dying, she spoke of a vision she had of self-love. She said that self-love would be better termed as self-hate because it is such an enemy and such a debilitator of the spirit. Self-love is worthless, and so self-love is a contradiction. It's a lie. When we believe we have self-love, we have no love. And this is why St. Catherine wanted it to be renamed self-hate. And one time as she was seeing the ugliness of this self-love, the devil appeared to her and said, I am the master of self-love. And when you think about this demon, what does self-love bring about? It never brings about joy, peace, reconciliation, unity, or happiness of any kind. It brings about division and destruction, tools of the devil. And Catherine came against that. And so our Lord Jesus blessed her for that. A church was built during her lifetime. Most likely, it was originally a hospital chapel. But she was a very important part of that church. It's not like they built it afterwards or because she was beatified, which is normally the case. No, they knew she was a saint before she died. And the church was built right next to where she lived, right next to the hospital where she served. She had many spiritual children. She never had any children of her womb, but many, many spiritual children. And so when their saint died without much notice, they placed her body in a sarcophagus and placed her into the ground. In the church built during her lifetime, she has always been in that church. The people of the town wanted to build a proper shrine to her memory, but they kept her in the ground during the construction. And it took about 18 months for the first shrine, the first altar to be built. It was a beautiful shrine over the, on the side of the church against the wall of marble. It was just a beautiful tribute to the saint, and she was there for a while. Then they decided to change the position so she could be facing the hospital where she had worked for so many years. And so they placed her high over the back of the church, facing the hospital where she had stayed until the end of the Second World War. 
Now this entire area was bombed out during the Second World War. The church suffered great damage, but it was saved. It was completely saved from the bombing. The hospital was bombed out. The area that she had lived in was bombed out, but the church remained. But there was enough damage that they had to take the body of St. Catherine and build a shrine that was more accessible to the people. This was built in 1960. We believe that where there is the relic of a saint, you have the presence of the saint. That is one of the reasons we put relics of saints in the altar stones of our churches. St. Catherine's body has never decomposed, so her urn is of glass and gold. People come to her shrine and venerate and get, send petitions to her. Miracles upon miracles have happened and continue to happen through the intercession of St. Catherine of Genoa. But when we see a body that has not decomposed, although this can be a sign of holiness, this is not what constitutes a saint. A person is judged upon the, uh, her virtuous life, the pious life that she led, and in addition, of course, the miracle that is necessary that came about after her death or, or during her lifetime, not, dur not during her lifetime. For instance, in the case of Padre Pio, although there were hundreds of miracles attributed to his intercession during his lifetime, they did not count during the cause of his canonization. It was miracles which occurred after his death that counted. But Catherine of Genoa and many bodies that have not decomposed have passed the test of time and have been proclaimed as blesseds or saints. The important sign, that outer sign of an inner truth, is a gift from God that draws us initially, possibly because the body has not decomposed. But when we study the life of these saints, we discover a role model, someone that we can relate to, can follow and use as a model. Now, something really unusual occurred with St. Catherine of Genoa. Because her body is incorrupt, relics are not given out. They do not take parts of the body out because the body has never decomposed. But a very special thing happened once for Cardinal Spellman of New York when he was a bishop. He asked for a relic of St. Catherine of Genoa to be placed in an altar stone in a new church being built in Boston. The superiors of the church and the bishop prayed over this request and finally decided to give Cardinal Spellman his wish. So the left finger, the left little finger, the pinky finger of St. Catherine of Genoa is in the United States. It's in Boston at a church dedicated to St. Catherine of Genoa. To the people of Genoa, St. Catherine was proclaimed a saint immediately upon her death. But it wasn't until 1737 that she officially was canonized the saint of the church by Pope Clement XII, and later Pope Benedict XIV added her to the Roman martyrology. It was women like St. Catherine of Genoa and Teresa of Avila, Catherine of Siena, all these great women who inspired my husband to write about what a real woman is like. And we have been searching and finding them all over the world. How blessed we are. We love you. We love you. God bless you. Please load our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Here's how to download our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Simply with your iPhone or Android device, go to the app store, search for Bob and Penny Lord app and download it. It's that simple. Here's what you can do with our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Number one, 
the, there's a link to our marketplaces, our websites, uh, our uh, blog, and this podcast. The second link is to our Bob and Penny Lord TV channel, where you can access all of our videos as seen on EWTN, plus a whole lot more. Thank you very much.